soprano Marlis Paterson, conductor Stephen Lord, and director Sir Thomas Allen are backstage at Lyric. And I really think she is. She's inventive from the moment. She has many ideas she likes to try out. And I think she's one of these girls that sometimes we forget that we are the same because we don't use it anymore. Life can be very serious and can be very strict and put into schemes and all that. And I think it's good to find these moments when you can bring out the little child in you, all of us, and just go for something crazy and do it. And this is what she really does. And she enjoys it very much, even the bad things, till this point when she hits him. And I think this is just really a moment when she forgets herself. And she realizes that now she has gone too far with mm-hmm. him. I do have a long history with this piece, and I'm very happy to do it with new people, meet new people, and, and work with new people, work with Tom in this capacity. Uh, I was, do you remember the first Barbara of Seville production here that, that Tom did um, in the 80s? I was the pianist and I played the recitatives. So, you know, this is a weird, full-circle sort of thing (laughs) that we're doing here. It's a most unusual piece. I I don't know anything that's quite like it in in the rest of the repertoire. And um, it, it takes... We have to be brave. I have to be brave. We all have to be brave to see it through because... Um, the, the, the message is very strong. Thank you for downloading this episode of Backstage at Lyric. I'm Roger Pines of Lyric Opera of Chicago. We'll be playing an audio transcript of the Lyric Opera Discovery Series session for one of the most beloved of all comic operas, Donizetti's Don Pasquale. For those of you who may not be aware of the Discovery Series, it's panel discussions featuring singers, conductors, directors, and opera experts. We do one session per opera, and they usually take place a few days prior to the opening of each production. The Discovery Series is open to the public, and it's a great way to get up close and personal with our artists. You can check out our website at lyricopera.org for dates, tickets, and complete Discovery Series information. We include all of the Discovery Series sessions as part of the Backstage at Lyric podcast. And now on to the Discovery Series discussion devoted to Don Pasquale. I'm the moderator for this session, and my guests are three of the most delightful artists on the international operatic scene. Our Norina, Marlis Peterson, our conductor, Stephen Lord, and our director, who's also one of the world's most distinguished baritones, Sir Thomas Allen. I know you'll appreciate their wit, their intelligence, and the wonderful insights they bring to Don Pasquale. The aged Don Pasquale wants to marry, and his nephew Ernesto, who finds that idea preposterous, is in love with the penniless Norina, but Pasquale declares that if that marriage takes place, Ernesto will be disinherited. Meanwhile, Dr. Malatesta enlists the help of Norina to teach Pasquale a lesson. She masquerades as Malatesta's convent-bred sister Sophronia, marries Pasquale, after which she turns into an impossible shrew. When Pasquale discovers what he believes is certain evidence that his bride is having an affair, he enlists Malatesta's help in a plan for revenge. It's eventually discovered that Norina and Sophronia are one and the same. Pasquale finally agrees to Ernesto's marriage to Norina. All right. Marlis and gentlemen, <laughs> how do we manage to accept, enjoy, and even love this piece when a trick is played on an old man that really is not very nice? <laughs> um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think we, we uh, forgive her because... In the end, everything is nice again. <laughs> and she's a very playful person. And she, they make all this plan, you know, to, with Don Pasquale and because she wants to take a little revenge uh, because Don Pasquale d- doesn't give her the Ernesto. So they, they do a little revenge to him, but they do it in a very playful way. And they already know from the beginning that in the end everything will be fine. So I think you can forgive her for that. <laughs> Gentlemen. Um, 
I think in order to justify some of the behavior and, and what happens in the piece, it's, as is often the case with something like this, it's, it's, it's rather good to write the story that, that doesn't exist, which is what happens before the curtain actually goes up. You know, you try to work out why it is that, um, that Malatesta takes against uh, Don Pasquale, a supposed friend, in such a way, in such a, a violent way, really, uh, and, and to treat him so abysmally. One can only assume and this is the story I've written for myself, at least, though I don't think we've discussed it, but you should know this. Um, <laughs> There'll be a quiz uh, afterwards. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that uh, there's obviously been some rift in, 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 their, um, in their past, and, or, or at least Malatesta has observed um, Pasquale's treatment of the young nephew undeserved in, 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 in getting a, the backwash of so many um, arguments or whatever it might be, the withholding of perhaps um, some money that he might have needed on certain occasions. Maybe he wanted some new paints for his picture that he was painting and, and, and Pasquale wouldn't give. Just general unkindnesses and I think Malatesta takes it upon himself to see this um, innocent young uh, young man, although he is a tenor, uh, <laughs> and there's a very good case to treat him uh, to be made against him. But uh, anyhow, he he uh, decides to to battle on his part on, and on the part of of their relationship, uh, and it's a, it's a it's it's a nice thing to do. It's a it's a it's a it's a it's a helpful thing to do. But it does mean that an older an older man. Um, and I say that advisedly, <laughs> an older man uh, is, the, is the victim or rather the subject of, of a, a, a pretty serious piece of behavior and suffers a lot in the process. It does. Suffers a lot in the process. It's a very... The, the problem with Pasquale, uh, if there is a problem uh, in trying to understand it, is I, th- I think so many people think of of L'Elysier. L'Elysier is so well known. It's a, it's a bucolic piece. It has lots of rustic fun and Dulcamara has um, cow dirt on his boots the entire evening and, you know, the whole thing is, is uh, full of straw and funny behavior and nice relationships between people and comic characters. And the assumption often is that Pasquale must be like that. And it's not. It's, I, I came up with the term in the last couple of days, it's a dramedy. Um, and I think that speaks for itself. There's a, one hell of a lot of drama in it and the occasional glimpse of light. Never thought of it that way before. I, I, this is revelatory, actually. Um, oh, dear. Thank, no, it's wonderful. <laughs> no, I will think of it completely differently now, which is a great thing. I think the character names tell us a lot about this piece. We have Malatesto, of course, who's a doctor, and that's about a headache, basically. Ernesto, who's the earnest artist young person. We have Pasquale, and if you all know that in in Italian, the word for Easter is Pasqua, and of course, Easter is about being reborn. So here's Pasquale in his whatever age he is, being reborn as a guy. And then there's Norina, that means nothing. And all we... (laughs) But this tells us something. This tells us... Well, this tells us something, because she is not like the others. She is not like the others. In a sense, she she is quite the pivotal person. And all we know from the list, the cast list, we have, you know, Ernesto, uh, a a poet or whatever, says, you know, Malatesta, a doctor, Pasquale, an old bachelor. And then we have Norina, and it says Norina, a widow. And yet we have a young widow. And I believe that in these days, uh, I mean, today they would have used another description, but in these days, they tell, uh, in those days, they say she's a widow because she's not as Caesar may have said in Latin, a vergine intacta. You know, I mean, she's been around. She has had a man in it her life. It allows a certain behavior. <laughs> right. And so when, she's, when she is actually knowing things, and she says in her first aria, you know, I know how to do this, I know how to, I can flirt, I know how to get people to do what I want them to do, we know that she's no innocent at all. I don't think she's a loose woman whatsoever, but I think Pasquale, in a sense, may hold that against her, that his nephew may, may want to be with a woman who has been with another man before and doesn't trust her moral standing. We know by her music that she's really a nice 
lady. Interesting, years ago in my former life when I used to coach singers, I was working with Renato Scotto a lot, uh, a lot. And she said to me, I said to her, well, you know, now that time is passing, why don't you sing, you know, Norina? Because it was Beverly Sills's last new role was Norina. And she said, no, I don't like her. And I said, well, you need to think about that for a minute. You know, you should like Norina because she has a purpose and she goes after it, rather like all of us and rather like you. <laughs> because it's true, Renata was very determined. I mean, Tom worked with her a lot too. You know, very determined woman who knew what she wanted and she went and got it. And so, you know, I think this piece has a lot of significance on lots of levels for us. Yes. No, I think it's a, it's a most unusual piece. I, I don't know anything that's quite like it in, in the rest of the repertoire. And um, it, it takes, we have to be brave, I have to be brave, we all have to be brave to see it through because um, the, the, the message is very strong. And it's very, when she hits Pasquale, and she does hit Pasquale, as you probably all know, um, it's a huge shock for this old man and bring, brings him up sharp with the realization of what it is that he's taking on and what a fool, potentially, he is making of himself in so doing. And uh, there's a very, very strong lesson there. And, uh, and, and then the piece proceeds. But if you follow it naturally, it's inevitable what that uh, conclusion will be. And in the end, as, as Malice says, there is happiness between the two young people and um, a heavy lesson learned by the older man um, now being comforted by his three mice. We, we call them the three mice. He has three servants, and they're very timid little men who cower around him the entire time. And, uh, but so that it's a most unusual treatment of a story uh, in, in operatic terms, and um, uh, it's quite a journey to take. We kind of wonder, I sometimes wonder, if, if in today's world, had this been written today, probably there'd be a time when Pasquale would have a heart attack or something, you know. What's the safety word? When do we pull the plug? <laughs> you know, when do we say we can stop now and how would we resolve this sort of situation? Probably some composer would do that today. But, mm. no, this has a much more rounder, wonderful feeling. It just builds and it comes back to where it should be. Now, uh, we have a much younger than usual Pasquale Ildebrando d'Arcangelo. So, Tom, how do you work with somebody in this role who is quite cast against type. Or against age. Or against age. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking as I do, uh, <laughs> the, the, I can say that there's an awful lot of energy um, in 60- and 70-year-olds. I don't know what age we decide that Pasquale should be, but he's a, he's a mature man. That's uh, no question of that. Uh, and there's no reason at all why a younger man... The mistake we made, I, I should finish that sentence off, uh, why a younger man, uh, or not a, not a teenager, not a man in his 20s, but someone along the, further along the line should essay a role like this. And of course, by the time you are 70 or whatever, whatever age you should be, it's too late. So you need all of that. And, but the thing, the, the, the crucial part of it is, is that there is energy to play the piece. The strange... An, an unusual um, factor in so much of uh, this score is is the presence of the waltz. There are waltzes that crop up at various times, different times, that serve various purposes. And, of course, as soon as you get into a waltz, and as soon as this old man uh, senses a waltz within him, the idea is that he should lighten off and start to envisage the children that there will be, that there will be in the future, the many children he might have, or the half dozen children there might be there, and how he'll watch them grow. And this excitement, this new world, this new life that he will enjoy. Um, and that's something that an older man can enjoy and something that a middle-aged man can enjoy. You know, in middle-aged, in biblical terms, that is. Um, uh, we, we, still with full of energy. Still full of energy. But the, I mean, the, the, the important thing is not to go um, senile with it or, or gaga, you know. Um, I speak on behalf of elderly people everywhere now. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing, knowing that um, the, the very on, oncome of six decades, seven decades, whatever it might be, doesn't mean that you're out of the picture. I've got energy uh, in store for still to sing Billy Budd, but sadly you don't get 
nigh on 70-year-old Billy Bods these days, uh, but I've still got the energy for it and the drive, so there's no reason at all why that shouldn't be the case. It's a new challenge. It's a challenge for Ildebrando. He's not been in, in an area like this before, but I've been encouraging him not to go on the, in that sort of doddery old man way, but just to play it as a strong character who is seriously hurt by the things that happened to him. I also th- uh, find uh, in Hildebrando a very fragile character. What I like very much sometimes, especially in this moment when she slaps him, he he shrinks really together. And um, Hildebrando is a very slim uh, person. And sometimes the whole body language he is using for the character is like fallen into himself and I think he is able to to bring over a really uh, yeah f- fragility to this character which touches me as pathos. Norina very much pathos I think is, is is a word but it also it's a you know playing something like this and whatever one is playing on stage um, uh, what I want to see is the ability of someone to charm birds off trees. There's always got to be charm there. You know, I, I, this, this production figures in my life. This particular set figures in my life since, since its uh, first appearance in the early 70s uh, when Jean-Pierre Penel uh, first directed and designed it. And um, it was very different then because, of course, it was new. Uh, the, the, the generation of singers that were involved in it were quite different from those now Uh, it was Geraint Evans, it was Ileana Kotrubash, it was Sesto Bruscantini or Gabriel Bacchier. I forget who did it first, maybe Bacchier. And uh, they were, they were a, a different kind of singer in many ways. We've moved on in, uh, in a way, I think. Evans had a natural ability to, to cause you to feel very, very, uh, uh, very sympathetic towards him. I mean, he could do that in a flash, in a moment, that, that tragedy. And that's what that, uh, that, that, that I'm asking Ilde Brando to do too. You know, that, you, that it's not a sudden decline, but uh, when, when, uh, when he first meets her and she turns and presents her real personality, you see the shock in him, but you don't kill him off. When she hits him in the third act, then you more or less do kill him off. And he comes, it's a huge and terrible, terrible shock to him as to what he's taken on. And maybe he'll just go back and retreat into the quiet of, a, of, the, of the life that he's enjoyed thus far. It's dangerous out there. <laughs> she, she, she does something really terrible. She, I mean, she's in her role as the, the, the new bride, but she leaves him on their wedding night to go off to the theater, dressed yeah. to the nines. So I really, Marlis, when, when I see that on stage, I'm really upset. Because look what... <laughs> so th- that leads me to the question, which is, so how do you give her... What are the places in the role where you can show uh, some humanity in her, some depth in her? Yeah, there are these moments. Um, I mean, if you think of the reason why she does all that, is the love to Ernesto, in a way. Also, of course, he's a playful person, and when they make the plan at the beginning together with Malatesta, she's very uh, excited about that. And there's also this beautiful word that Ernesto says about her, that she's virtuosa. And I really think she is. She's inventive from the moment. She has many ideas she likes to try out. And I think she's one of these girls that, Sometimes we forget that we are the same because we don't use it anymore. Life can be very serious and can be very strict and put into schemes and all that. And I think it's good to find these moments when you can bring out the little child in you, all of us, and just go for something crazy and do it, you know. And this is what she really does. And she enjoys it very much, even the bad things, till this point when she hits him. And I think this is just really a moment when she forgets herself and she realizes that now she has gone too far with mm. him. And this for me is a very authentic, true moment um, where she... That was too much. And, she, and you see this also on stage, that she's... Uh, she feels the remorse at that moment, yeah. doesn't she? But yeah, then she do, doesn't she say... I feel badly about this, but I have to go on with the charade. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
you have to reach the aim in order to make the story and the morale yeah. happen in the end. So sh she has to say, okay, um, I slept, you know, but, and he is very sad, and she says, okay, but now I go to the theater. And then he says, go, and you will never come back. I don't open my doors again for you. So the story has to go on, but it's, this is hard for her to... But what's, what's interesting, what Malice is saying, is that she says, I'm, I'm going to the theater. She slaps him, and I'm going to the theater. But the way in which she says it mm. is, is that parting thing. And I've asked her, um, and she does, uh, because I'm the director. Uh, <laughs> uh, in leaving him, she... She doesn't want to leave. And so what you do in that situation, what one does in that situation, is leave to the very last moment a little bit of you behind. You know, you say, I'm, my hand is out. I'm going now. Not I'm going now. Yeah. If I, I'm going now. You is keep that, is the bridge that all to right him, yeah. with you if I go now? And so in, in a small way like that, you try to demonstrate that, This is a tender moment for her. She has hit him. It's a brutal act. It's a horrible thing to see, but you can soften it afterwards by just a tiny little gesture of that sort. Well, actually, Don, then he does soften it himself. He does. Because indeed. as she says goodbye for the night, we go back to a waltz again. She starts singing, you know, yeah. goodbye, and it's a very, very kind of light waltz that she sings, although she's insulting him during the whole thing. She's yeah. gone back to the game. She keeps calling him grandpa. She keeps calling him Belnonno, you know, good old yeah. grandfather. Go to sleep. Yeah. Go to sleep and remember how old you are. She says, reflect upon your age. You can't go out. But we're back to the joke because it's, again, a waltz. It's a very nice light sort of dance. Stephen, you came to this opera at the absolute beginning of your career. No, it was, was, was it the Way first opera you ever heard? First opera I ever heard. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm from, uh, I'm a farm boy from Massachusetts. Can you imagine such a thing? How did I end up like this? Uh, but Tom has his own story that way too. And, um, Me too. Uh, yeah, and Marlis too. Uh, I, went to, I went to school, to college as a major in French, and then I went to this performance. Someone made me do it, and I just totally fell in love with it. And it was Don Pasquale, in English, of course. And then that was fine, and I, I kind of fell in love with the medium. And then one of my first professional jobs was, uh, as a piano player, doing a tour of Nebraska, of all things, with a production of Don Pasquale. Uh, you all know maybe who Christopher Alden is, who's directed here. He was the director. Sherry Greenwald, who you may know, was the Norena. Rockwell Blake, the quintessential uh, Rossini tenor, was in it. Uh, and the page turner for that was Neil Rosenshine, who had su who sung here many times. So we had a fantastic time doing this piece from the very beginning. Uh, and then it was the first opera I ever conducted when I started conducting. And so I have I just know this piece inside my heart. I, I owe it a lot. Maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I should resent it because it got me into this beastly thing. Um, but no, sincerely, I absolutely do adore this piece because it, it taught me something about my own destiny. So, hello. What, <laughs> so what qualities in I mean, this is a big Don Pasquale year for you, isn't it? Or, or? No, I do. I do it after this. I go right away yeah. to the Juilliard School. And do it there because they have these collaborations. So I'll be in, in New York doing it. And it will be very different from this one because they're all kids. We'll have a, uh, we'll have a, uh, I have a Korean bass who's doing Don Pasquale. But he's very well prepared. Now I've started working with them already. And we'll be doing a whole other take on it there. And I think it's wonderful because it can be done by anyone. If you think about the original cast of Don Pasquale, You know, the original Pasquale was certainly not an old man. I mean, this was a very famous quartet of singers that sang in those days. I believe the original quartet was the Puritani Quartet. Not totally, because Rubini wasn't in there. Really. No, right, it was Mario. Was the, yeah, it was Mario yeah, yeah. that sang it. But this was a very famous group of, of singers who sang in, these, in, in those days. And the older people were sung by younger people. So I, mean, I don't have a problem with it. It's going to be odd that I have two Korean men... <laughs> Um, Get used um, to it. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's true. But it's, it's also interesting, the Asian singer today, how adaptive they are to this style of music. They really are very adaptive to everything. And so, great. 
But I have, do have a long history with this piece, and I'm very happy to do it with new people, meet new people, and, and work with new people, work with Tom in this capacity. Uh, I was, do you remember the first Barbara of Seville production here that, that Tom did um, in the 80s? I was the pianist and I played the recitatives. So, you know, this is a weird full circle sort of thing <laughs> that we're doing here. Uh, and so I have a great soft spot for it all, Roger. Um, so the question is, what keeps you coming back to it other than your, you know, the role that it played in your development? What qualities in the piece itself? The humanity. It's, you know, I've been lucky in my life that uh, I, I've been able to do the pieces that I want to do. Um, and I would rather do pieces that I love and I, and I love the people in it then I can maybe conduct it better if I love the people. Um, uh, it reminds me of John. Yeah. Uh, Copley, in a sense. You know, you have to love the people. You have to love the people who are singing it, but you have to love the, pe- the characters you're doing. And the theater in it, I like to conduct theater. It sounds really awful, but I like theater in the pieces. Yes, I do adore the music, which supports the theater, but I, do, I love the, the timing and the theatricality of it, and there's always something more to learn in this. It's like doing Mozart. You know, every time you come to this piece, it's like doing Figaro again. You, always, you hear something new, and you can go with it. And uh, so coming back to a masterpiece is always welcome. <clears throat> coming back to a minor masterpiece, which this isn't, which is because this is a major masterpiece, isn't always so easy. I just do it because I love it, and I think there's no other answer. Roger. It charms me. That's good. So, Tom, when you came to this piece, of course, you were Malatesta to start mm-hmm. with, and now in sitting in the director's chair, what sort of Don Pasquale do you want to present? Because this piece can go different ways, and I mean, I've seen a lot of Don Pasquales that have upset me just because of that people overact or people are encouraged to just sort of go over the top with it. And so how, when you, when you knew that you were doing it, what sort of thoughts did you have about the kind of, sort of the tinta of the production did you, were you thinking about? Well, it, the, it, I was in an event last evening and there was a gentleman there in the audience who uh, told me exactly how many productions he'd seen in how many theatres of how many operas over a period of 65 years. <laughs> and, uh, and he talked about the comedic qualities of uh, Don Pasquale. And I said, well, for the life of me, I haven't found very many comedic qualities in this yet. I think, like all good comedy and all good drama, um, it's, it's all based on the situation. And all I've urged the cast to do is play real characters. And they are real. I mean, it's, you know, for, for Marlis and, and, and Corey, it's, it's like a, a scene from uh, um, The Sting with Robert Redford. You know, the two of them set up a situation in which they can, they can take this old man for a ride. And, and it's carefully thought out. She has skills. He calls on them. He says, I like that. I don't like that. Take that out. Let's do a bit of that. And if you play all of these various scenes for real, the genuine feeling that, that Ernesto has for her, which is very profound and very beautifully written, and, and, and the line is there, that's beautiful. But in the, at the center of it all, and then, of course, Dr. Malatesta, you might well ask to see his certificates. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I think he's a doctor on a Mississippi steamboat, really, <laughs> um, selling snake oil. It's ra- rather more than rather more than aspirin or, or so, some other pills. Um, he's a shyster of sorts. Uh, he's a, he's a, what we call in England a spiv. Um, That's the, what a spiv a is. A spiv. Is that what S P I V? Yes, okay. a spiv. Uh, and spivs used to wear very very wide ties. Mm-hmm. Usually with a Hawaiian girl dancing in the middle of it. Uh, I have one of those. He belongs, he belongs to that category. But he's, uh, he can spin a story and tell a tale. And then Pasquale, all I urge Ilabrando to do is not go over the top, not to think of what, you know, what funny position you can find it or what funny move or whatever. Just play the thing for what it is. 
and the situations will give us um, the tragic moments, but also the the amusing moments and the things that come out of in any within any tragedy. There's always something amusing that you can laugh about, and those are the moments that we seek to find that come from that are organic and come out of the piece properly. Um, you mentioned the three little servants. Yeah. Um, are there other elements of this production that we may not have seen before in, in, in Pasquale Productions previously? Well, one of the things I remember about this show when it was new and, and that lasted with it, it had a long journey. It started in London and was in London for quite a number of years and was revived on several occasions. And I think it then went to, certainly part of its journey was to Los Angeles where I performed it. Um, and then it went to uh, Dallas for its last outings and now it's here. This is over a period of nigh on 40 years. Um, and the, 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 the most important feature of it when it was new uh, were the cats. Pasquale had cats. You know the way some people take in cats? A man, there, was a, there was a man who lived near me when I was growing up, and he had 68 dogs, 68 dogs in a tiny house. Um, well, Pasquale's doing that with cats. At least he used to be. And, of course, as you can imagine, as this show went around from 1974 or 73, whatever it was, in London, they went to America, and they went somewhere else and somewhere else. The cats were sort of left and abandoned as it, as it progressed. Um, and so the last time I was in it was in Los Angeles, and there were three remaining cats sadly sitting down at the front of the stage. And I think after that they were abandoned. They were flea-bitten and moth-eaten and looked pretty bad. But they, st- they certainly did things in those early days. There was one of them had a tail that dangled from the balcony, and it was on a little piece of fishing wire, so you just tugged it like that, and the, 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 the tail would just dangle and shake, and you know, just draw attention every now and then. <laughs> so that's one thing that you could have seen. The other thing I remember most strongly about it, because it, at the time, at Covent Garden anyhow, there was a very bolshy chorus who basically did nothing. When the men went on stage, they used to lean down, one of them in particular, wipe the hand across the floor and do his makeup, and that was it. That was as much as was required. Those were the bad old days. And then this production was put on in London, and I saw a chorus for the first time, each and every member of which had an identity and a proper character. And it was wonderful because they had pride in their work, they had something properly to do instead of just standing like blocks around the stage and Purnell gave them wonderful things to do and, it was, and I admired it enormously and I've tried to do something along those lines, I can't possibly emulate him, he was a very very clever man, but, but that's what we've been going for and there are one or two you know, the, the servants contribute a lot to the piece, they have a lot to say in the piece, they help us Marlis, you have sung a lot of coloratura repertoire, some of the most difficult coloratura roles I can think of. So by comparison to them, what sorts of challenges on the singing side does Norina offer you? Um, Of course, there is lots of coloratura here. Also, uh, the special Donizetti kind, which is not easy because it still has to carry uh, the funny um, expression. Yeah, they are the coloraturas of, let's say, Queen of the Night, which are completely different from the ones Donizetti writes for Norina, or other examples we have there, of course, too. Um, for me, in general, uh, concerning Norina, the most difficult thing is really to get the pointe, you know, the, the how do you say that in English? Di pointe. The, the, um, the, the climax, oh, yeah. to put uh, in the right moment the joke. Also when, when a recit is done, for example, so that you get the right tempo for telling the right thing in the right time and get the person exactly there. And this, in comedy is anyway, uh, it's a difficult thing and Nurina has many different moments of that. She has mm-hmm. the laughing part, she has the thing where she has to think about things and make a decision. And all these are, you know, they are from one second to the other. And to get this right is a very difficult thing. And you have to do it with the singing also, in the recits, and also sometimes with the farmata. Or you have, to, you have the break for thinking. 
and then it has to go on in the right. So it's all this playfulness with the music, you know. Oh, you're is, talking about a, a break like that that's built into the music or that yeah. you are creating, that, that Both Donizetti's of them. giving you? Both of them, uh-huh. yeah. Interesting. Is there a phrase in your role that you particularly love just because it is so incredibly characterful and sort of in just manages to sort of sum her up? You know, I love these moments when when there is these the the, the kind of This is Norina is for me a, a, a woman that she's always on the move. If she sits and, but she doesn't sit like that. It's, it's, you see, it's like there's always going on either in her mind or in the fingers or the, the feet are dancing or she's moving around. And I think this music is really, she's on the move all the time. And this is very, uh, this, we have, thank God, some time more, uh, more often in this uh, opera that, you know, it's like, okay, there she is again, you know, run, ta dan ta dan <laughs> I love this very much. Um, now, Tom, you, you were talking about Malatesta as a, a spiv, and yet he does have one of the most elegant of all bel canto arias to sing. And Will you sell snake oil? That's what you're doing. <laughs> you've, you've, you've got to sell these things, you know. Go on, sorry. Um, so, Bella Siccomi and Angelo, which is an aria that, boy, I mean, it's a first Italian, first 19th century Italian aria for just about every baritone I've ever known. Yeah. And yet, it, it's challenging. What is it about that aria that, number one, makes it so beloved and has for so long? And what does it take to sing it? Well, this is the opening aria of the opera where Malatesta is talking to, he's saying to Pasquale, have I got the right girl for you? And let me tell you all about her and how wonderful she is. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a curious aria, actually. It, it sets itself up with a lovely line. He sets, him, he sets Pasquale down. He said, let me tell you about it, as you say. But then within the aria, within the first, very few, first few bars, there are some very odd little accents, jabs, and um, sort of staccato mo- moments when it seems to me the... The unre- or rather the untruthful quality of what it is that he's selling to Pasquale is, is brought out. You know, Bella si come un angelo in terra pellegrino. It, it's, it's got a strange line, does it not, Stephen? It does, And, yeah. and in, in observing it, if you observe it accurately as you go through, you think, well, that's very odd. But it, it actually gives the clue to what it is that Malatesta's doing, which is, um, which is tell a lie, basically. Um, and paint a picture, but selling his medicine, if you like, in in uh, in, in the in the in the quack terms. Um, but at the same time, you're singing this wonderful. You still have to be able to sing this wonderful bel canto line with these strange little requirements and daggers and points and everything on it. And then you finish up with this extended cadenza, um, the, 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 um, in which he sort of weaves a web around Pasquale at the end of which he says, I'm convinced, I'm convinced completely. And, uh, and of course, when he finds out that it's, that it's one of Malatesta's family and he assumes that it'll be someone of his age, and then he says, no, it's uh, not, not, uh, not, 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 not a parent, rather, but uh, my, my sister. Then it's, it's heart attack time almost for, for Pasquale, and then he's on his own journey there with, um, uh, with, with the waltz tune. But the aria itself is a, is a little gem in two little verses, uh, during, during which time they manage a glass of sherry, um, and, then, and then on. It's, uh, it's, it's, um, it's a presentation aria, the presentation being of this lady here, and he, he has to sell her, and he does it in this aria most beautifully, I think. I think he's selling something on, I think he's selling a used car that may have had a little water damage, but no one really knows yet. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the merry, I didn't the know merry all widow. of that. The merry widow. But it's very interesting. You know, I hear hundreds of auditions every year, and I always ask for this if it's on the list, because although the range of it isn't huge, it's not the range of of, of Figaro, for example. You know, it it shows so much style. It can show if the person has style class and if they can sing technically very well. 
Also in the text, you get these odd things. You know, most of this text is by Donizetti. The um, original librettist, Ruffini, kind of gave the plot line, adapted it, and whatever. Most of the verse is by Donizetti himself. So he says, um, uh, uh, um, He says, Sguardo che il cor conquide. You know, so you have a young singer and you say to them, what did you just say? And they said, Sguardo che il cor conquide. Okay, uh, what do all those words have in common? Ka, 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 one after the other. You're trying to sell something as guardo che il cor conquida. Do you know what? It's quite insistent. He chose that alliterative device mm-hmm. to drive the point home. Mm-hmm. And throughout it, it's really it's fascinating. And the beginning of it, the first thing a guy does, now you can tell us, you know, I think men here know. The first time when you ask somebody what their girlfriend looks like, ladies, I'm sorry. The first thing the guy says, she's beautiful. She's really good looking. The first thing a guy talks about in this is what she looks like. The second half of the aria is what she's like inside. But the fact that the first thing he says is she's beautiful is a really chauvinistic thing. <laughs> but it, it's really kind of great. Life. We say the same thing about men. Also. He's hot. <laughs> right. <laughs> Don't know. Never been a girl. I, got to... <laughs> I wanted to ask... Tom and Stephen both about another highlight of this piece, which is the Malatesta Pasquale duet, which is very difficult to the second half. It's probably the fastest Italian that I can think of in any opera. And at one point, the two of them are singing that very fast Italian together. So, and not the same words. Two different texts. Right. Yeah. So, which makes everyone think somebody's gone wrong here. <laughs> so what does it take to perform that music properly. Well, can I just say this is not original to the opera. The Pasquale Malatesta duet was not original to the opera. It came later in, in the first revival. So I think they probably thought, maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, and this is late in Donizetti's life that he wrote this. I think, I think they probably thought it needed an 11 o'clock number. As they say in Broadway, we needed something, you know, right there to like goose up the night for the rest of the night. So I think its main purpose is that. It is. I think it's an 11 o'clock number. And in many ways, it's, it's out of place. You could go from the recitative that precedes it right. straight to the garden. There's no, no exactly. reason with the, you know, there's everything there in place. But it's, it's, it's rather like having uh, Adelina Patti or somebody around who says, at this point, I will sing my favorite <coughs> ditties. Right. And so you've got a bass and a baritone that say, well, let's, let's share the stage at this moment. We'll both sing our, our favorite ditties. And, of course, it's become uh, the piece that gets um, the, the uh, repetition. It's often repeated, uh, although we're, not, we're hoping not to have to do that. Um, no. Uh, because otherwise it, it goes into strange never-never land. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's very odd. It, it sort of works. It works because you do see Malatesta. It, it gives us an opportunity for Malatesta to see Pasquale in this ruined state, semi-ruined state, anyhow. And then it goes on from there with the, the, the formation of a plot and what we'll do. Um, often blunder, blunderbusses are brought out, and uh, we don't have blunderbusses. We have another device. We have two other devices. I'll, keep, I'll leave that as... Do you all have your tickets? Are you going to be able to see figure that? Okay. <laughs> uh, Stephen, the first time we talked about Don Pasquale, you told me something very significant about the piece, and I wanted you to elaborate on that and then have Marlis and Tom respond to it also. You Uh-oh. talked about the it? element in this piece that makes it work is the Norina, the Norina Malatesta sure. relationship. Mm-hmm. Sure, so, their relationship. And yeah. actually, we're playing that pretty well in this because we have Malatesta, who's not an old man. He's not an old man. And we have this woman who is obviously... Not uh, inexperienced. Inexperienced. Very Thank well you. said, Tom. Very well. <laughs> um, and so we actually have moments in this duet where they look at each other, and we know that you know they maybe they shared a drink at a bar one night. They know things about each other that nobody else knows about each other in this piece. And I think it's wonderful because they're the two people who actually make the piece happen. Ernesto's there because she needs a boyfriend. I mean, that's, that's it. You know, Pasquale is there because he's the guy who played the joke on. But these two are, I don't want to say Rosina and, and Figaro, but maybe they are. 
maybe they are in a sense. And maybe in this case, it is like uh, Barber. Maybe you're just a little I smarter than... I think it's very like that. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, the, it's the equivalent that comes to mind, I must yeah. say. You always feel that when, when, uh, when, when Rosina in The Barber starts mm-hmm. to quiz Figaro about the man that she saw him with downstairs and who is he and what... Are the teasing that goes on between the two of them is something that's very, very comfortable. And it's also very... And very male, female, oh, yeah. one step away from what oh, it could be. Yeah, you yeah. know, because if you don't, if, it's, if there's no, if yeah. there's no sex in this duet, as it were, if there's no male-female sort of thing, then the piece might as well not happen. In both cases, they yeah. they realize that they mustn't overstep the mark; that they're just keeping one another at bay. We have some, we have a job at ha- in hand. We mustn't get let other issues mm-hmm. interfere. But you know, somehow, instinctively, that there's a, an, a, an attraction between them. They they spark one another. They're they're very like. Mm. They're very like one another in that it's, way. It's this ping-pong relationship, you know, that one yeah, inspires the other. Okay, and also they don't, they don't need words. They understand each other. When, when he has a thought, I immediately see what, where, where he's going to. So it's this uh, understanding without words. And uh, I think there could be... I think they have, what do you say, like this, the same energy level yeah. and also the same eye level. And they could, it could be a relationship also, but I think they're more brother and sister and mirror for each other than a loving couple. So what is, what is the physical... I mean, is it a very physical relationship also? Are they very affectionate with each other physically? They are. I mean, they're they not get, really affectionate, they but close. they touch. They, they touch, they, and they, they're very easygoing with uh, clapping on... But there are ways, uh, you, there are are ways you, you can touch kiss, and the ways you can't touch. This, you know? this understanding are, thing. But there is yeah. that one awkward moment that I love. Because today, today I have, I've never really heard this opera in the theater, so I went out and I listened to it while my assistant conducted, conducted the duet, and I never really saw that moment. There's a moment of, don't go there. <laughs> you know, I love that moment. Yeah, they, they lose each other in a little dance, and yeah, they have like, really fun, and then suddenly they're, they're very close. And it's like, oops. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where is that moment happening musically? Where is that? In the duet there. Oh, Colo Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's keep, where it's happening. Yeah, bed. just before that. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Grazie, grazie, Sarah. Well, it's, it, it, they like one another a lot, clearly, and uh, spark one another. I think that's, that's the, the secret of it. And it? we sometimes forget in opera that, you know, they just met each other on the stage five, two minutes ago, but really they met each other quite a while back, you know. Maybe they were school chums. Who knows? Yeah. But you know, there's history. Hmm? There's history. There's, hi- there's history. There's history. Um, Stephen, I know that bel canto repertoire is really important to you. It doesn't always excite orchestral players. So, how do you, in the pit, go about creating a genuinely sort of characterful orchestral performance oh, wow. in this piece? It's interesting. I did my I did my first Norma in Toronto uh, when the world was cooling, and um, I remember a second violinist came up to me after it was over and said, "Thank you for helping us learn to love this music." The thing is, you look at the score, and there's it's not very dense. It's not Salome or Electra. It's just, it's not one of those pieces. But in Italian music, every note is a melody, even when they pluck. Once a bar, once a bar in the basses. Ultimately, that is a tune. So every little inner voice you have in this music has a tune. And if you can get, and plus the fact, well, this is a long, long thing. Um, plus the fact, if you can involve the players in the theater and tell them what's happening, there's a moment when she plays somebody very naive. And I said to the violins, you've got to play this with a straight tone, like a really bad Baroque orchestra, you know? Very nasal, very horrible. And they, oh, no, we don't want to do that. No, you have to. You have to be actors in the pit. And it's very difficult uh, for an orchestra that oftentimes just will play, uh, well, they, what do they do? Electra just now, or they're doing Verta tonight, you know. It, that music is so obvious. There's nothing in this music that is written out when you have the music of, uh, Stravinsky said, all you have to do to be successful in my music is play it as I wrote it. And it's the same thing with Britain. All you have to do with Britain's music, because it was such genius, is do exactly what he wrote, and you'll have a success. You cannot do this music as it's written. It's, it's impossible. If it sounds natural, we've done a really good job. 
Uh, I, in Juilliard just now, I worked with the, with the kids for a week on it beforehand, and I said, you know, with all this work we're doing, in the end, no one's going to notice it, but we'll know, and if they don't notice it, it's the greatest compliment, because we, we're trying to do theater here, and that's, and, and that's what it is. There are no markings in this. You look at your score, it'll say, you know, speed up here, slow down. Those aren't in the hands of the composer. You know, what you do in this music is you invent it, as you go. It's not as good as Mozart, if you want to talk about good, because Mozart was Mozart. So that's pretty easy. But even in Mozart, you find new things. He didn't spell everything out that he wanted. And in this music, a lot is kind of understood. It's not written there. So we, we find it. We play with it. We deal with the stage director. We find the theater. We deal with the singers. You know, we try to find things that time so it is. And so if the orchestra can feel involved... If they can feel involved that they're, they're being actors, if they can feel involved in the drama and not just doing all the other things they do, playing in tune and trying not to play too loud, which is difficult in a piece that has this huge orchestration, then I think they feel involved with it. And that's my joy. Just doing, I did Sweeney Todd just now. And, you know, these orchestrations are by Jonathan Tunick are fine. They're really good, but if you can get the St. Louis Symphony, which is a great orchestra, to really feel they're part of, of the theater it comes alive. And so that's why I love this. I love Bellini for that. People say it's not theatrical. Excuse me. You know, it is theatrical. If every middle voice knows they're playing a tune, then they're going to feel like they're part of a whole and not just a plucking. Now um, oh, I could go on. So I will stop. <laughs> <laughs> it's a problem with, uh, with uh, professional musicians, though. Uh, I've, I've just been involved in a, a little concert tour around England and Scotland with with an orchestra, hand-picked orchestra, uh, and we did a, several evenings of Rodgers and Hammerstein. This is a, a man in England, a young man in England called John Wilson, who just has a brilliant skill for making this music work. Uh, and that's one element of it, the fact that he's able to put this orchestra together and people want to play for him. And because they want to play for him and because the, f- the fun that they have with him in rehearsal and in performance is always there and guaranteed, they play with smiles on their faces. And for so many musicians who are either in a pit or wherever it might be, that it becomes, sadly, very much a routine, humdrum job. And, you know, if, if you're playing the accompaniment to the big theme in Traviata, which is um, boom, boom, oh, boom, 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 and you're one tiny element of that. Maintaining your interest for a lifetime isn't easy. <laughs> you know, the genius of Giulini to make um, boom, 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 to make that work is a rare and uncommon thing. And, uh, but music is better than that. Yes, and Should the thing be. is, as I say, is if it sounds natural it's fine. If something seems amiss, it's really gone off track very, very far. Um, Marlis and Tom, I have seen you both on stage in comic roles, and you excel in comedy. I mean, there's a very... You, you both, in my view, have a very classy style as, as comedians on the stage, which is really extraordinary. So how did you discover that, that, that you could do comedy? Um, I think that happened in my first engagement in Nuremberg. I was five years uh, fest in, in an opera house in Germany. And this was an opera house at that time that had a long um, past with operetta. And there were still um, the singers that were specialized in operetta, mm. those who could really like sing and talk uh, at the same, so they were trained to do both of that. And we made lots of op- operetta there, and I grew into this, be guided by those people who have done it for years and years. And uh, they taught me also how to you have a good timing for the things. This I learned there. And, you know, then... Was there uh, a role that actually was sort of the, opened the door to comedy for you and showed you what you could do with it? I think it was Fledermaus Adele, for sure. It was that where I really started enjoying immensely the combination of uh, 
a funny operetta and also, you know, a high quality singing because Adele is not easy to sing. She has some really two very extremely difficult arias and they have to sound light and funny and to do to reach this point you have to do hard work you yeah. know it's like you yeah. said when the orchestra sounds light and easy you have done lots of work to reach this point comedy is hard Co comedy is hard yeah that is very funny tom for you was there a role that sort of showed you what not what, dis your not dissimilar but it was flirty mouse um, and Papageno maybe as well but I started off in my career with very very well no experience of being on stage I just jumped in at the deep end did, did an audition was offered some work and I just had to have someone stick some makeup on my face and say go on do it and so I did and uh, I, was, I was a member of, for about three the first three years of my career with Welsh National Opera and that meant a lot of touring and a lot of different roles. I mean, there was one week with Welsh National, I remember singing um, Magic Flute uh, on the Monday. On Tuesday was uh, Barber of Seville, conducted by Jimmy Levine, of all people. Uh, and then um, Bohem, Bocanegra, uh, and, and, and I, I think maybe another flute at the, uh, on, the on the Friday, and then a, a concert on Saturday, yeah. just to make ends meet. Um, and all for very, very little money. Um, But you, my God, you didn't half learn your job. And the Fledermaus experience was uh, in this vein that the director sat at the top of the theatre in the farthest seats. And we would be there at times up till midnight and doing the dialogue. And he'd say, I can't hear you, can't hear you. And we learned how to pitch a voice into the theatre, know how to get to the back row of a theatre, you know, whatever the dialogue might be. I've known that, I learned that, I learned timing and everything, just as you did, Marlis, in exactly that same way. Uh, and learning from folks who had been there and just knew how to do comedy, who knew how to, when to deliver the line, how to wait, how to use silence, how to use a pause. Yeah. And then deliver it, and know exactly how what the, and understand the mechanics of comedy, because there there is a you can analyze it and make it work. You know some things I can look at things now because of experience and say no, don't do that. That doesn't work. Now do it. Then it works, and it's just a fraction. It's fractional all the time. Um, and uh, and that's that's how I learned. It's amazing it, it, to it, see yeah. uh, him. I mean, because yes, I've is, uh, yeah. sung with him, and now to have him as a director is very special, because you see, you can you see the singer, you see also the director, you see the artist, you see the technician. He is a a, um, a cosmos of <laughs> a renaissance. Really, man. I mean, that's yeah. amazing. No, more, more, more. Yeah, <laughs> Le later. later. <laughs> no, fantastic. It's, it's a joy um, because, I don't know, you must know that too. There are many directors these days who haven't learned to be a director. They come from somewhere and they do something. And there's not, yeah, there is not the base and the foundation of what this means. And... Uh, But, you know, I think what we do as performers up there is we're dynamos in a way or, or um, energy sources. And we, we have an energy in us. And it's, it's for us to know how to use that energy, how much to give out at any particular time, how to, how to preserve that energy and, and use that. Economic, as long as you know there's a vital force up there that's thinking, working and, 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 and operating. And it, it, it's that skill. It's, it's a bit like fishing, knowing how much line to put out and when to withdraw the line, and then you give it again. You know? what I, what's been great for me in the show is that we have two young people, um, uh, younger people, from the opera center who've grown into their careers. We have Corey Kreider and we have Renee Barbera, who obviously do not have the experience of some of the other people in the cast. And watching them grow has been terrific. It's been really wonderful watching them take things and start to make it their own and come along and grow. And frankly, in the end, that's our responsibility mm. as people who've been around is to help these young people learn something that they can take away and do something else. And I think they're learning from you folk, you know, from people who have had a bigger career and more experience. And I just love seeing that happen. I love seeing them you know, rise and come up and come up and come up. And that's 
It's very yeah, rewarding. Yeah, and the togetherness, to you know, that yeah. you, especially with the comedy, you 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 are a group and you have to be together, and that includes everyone. Mm -hmm. yeah. Everyone. That's very nice. I think we probably... I, I forgot my watch today, so I don't know what time it is. Do we have... Wait, is it five percent. It's, it's five... Oh, we've overdone things. We've, we've, we've gone over our time. And so I have to let every, these uh, wonderful, wonderful people go because they have a dress rehearsal tomorrow. At to noon. <laughs> yes. So thank you all so much. This has been fabulous. Well, thank you for coming. Thank you for listening to this edition of Backstage at Lyric. For more interactive content and to purchase tickets, visit lyricopera.org.